We are finishing our Reformation anniversary series on the so-called solas or the onlys of the Reformation. These are mottos that came out of the Reformation time. And we're looking in our final one at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. We've been asking some basic questions, questions about life, and finding answers in the Bible according to the outline of the mottos that came out of the Reformation some 500 years ago. And we'll go over the four that we've looked at, and then they culminate in the one we're seeing today. The first question has to do with, where are we going to find truth? Would you like to have a place that you know always tells you the truth and never lies to you, is always reliable and never failing? Where would that be? Where could we find that? And the answer we found is in Scripture alone. And then we ask the question, why would God have anything to do with us? Why would He intervene in our lives? Why would He come into our world for our rescue? And the answer to that is, not anything in us, but because of His grace alone. And then we ask the question, how do we receive that grace? How can we access that? How can we come into a, a relationship that's positive with God and have, have Him favorable to us? And then we answer that by Scripture by finding that it is by faith alone. And that raises the question, in whom? In whom should we place our faith? Uh, who is one that can bridge the gap between God and us? And we found that the answer to that question is, Christ alone. So we have Scripture alone, we have grace alone, we have uh, faith alone, and we have Christ alone. And now we ask the final question. And the final question is this. Why do we get up in the morning? Have any of you ever asked that question? (coughs) Have any of you awakened either to the alarm or to daylight and said, why do I get up today? And that's the purpose question. What am I doing here? Why do I exist? 
Why do I do anything that I do? And not why the cause of, but rather why the purpose of. What is the purpose of my being here? What is the purpose of my life? And that's the final question. And this is where it all comes together. Now, in order to discover our purpose, we need to take a step way back. And that step way back might seem like something that is beyond us, and it would be if God had not already told us. And that question is this. We need to ask a previous question. In order to discover our purpose in life, we need to ask, what is God's purpose in life? Why does God exist? And when we figure out why God exists, then that will give us the clue to telling us why we exist and why we should get up in the morning or brush our teeth, or change a diaper, or go to work, or study, or practice free throws, or whatever it might be that we're doing in our lives. And this comes from our text in Ephesians. And I want you to notice that as you read it, of course, you saw this is a very dense and full passage, and we won't be able to to go over it with a fine-tooth comb. But look at the first couple verses, and I think you will see some of the, the mottos that we've already noticed. Paul, an apostle of whom? Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful or believers in Christ Jesus. And then it says what? Verse 2? Grace to you. So we have three of the five here. We have Christ alone, we have faith alone, and we have grace alone. And then we get into this long run-on sentence. And in this long run-on sentence, in verses 3 to 14, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to follow it. But in this whole section, we will find throughout that Paul describes us repeatedly with a phrase. And that phrase is, in Christ. In Christ. And this answers the question, where are you? If you're a believer in Christ, where are you before God? And where have you always been throughout all of eternity? And where will you always be? And according to Paul, he says... We, if we believe in Christ, we are located in Christ. So God contemplates us. He sees us as being in Christ and never apart from Christ. And um, so, if we are in Christ, we are in Him as the only suitable mediator between God and man, as we saw last week. And He praises God. That's what this whole section is. It's a praise to God. Verse 3. Blessed be the God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we won't be able to, in this short time, to go over all the blessings. But what He does is, He piles blessing upon blessing upon blessing. He says, He has blessed us uh, in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then the rest of it, he just keeps piling on blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. But we're going to just look at the outline of what he does, because it's a fascinating outline, because what he does is he say, says we're blessed by the Father, we're blessed by the Son, and we're blessed by the Holy Spirit. And uh, those of you who are familiar with Christian teaching and the Bible's teaching about who God is, it teaches that God is one and He's also three. Something difficult for us to contemplate, but He's one God. He exists in three persons. Those are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's how He breaks this down. And He starts with the Father. Verse 3. Do you see that? Blessed be the God and what? Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, in verses 7 to 12, he focuses on the Son. And then in verses 13 and 14, he focuses on the Holy Spirit. But let's just try to sum up. What's the Father's work in our rescue? 
in the intervening in our world? What's the Father's participation in that? What's the Son's focus in that? And what's the Holy Spirit's? And what we find is the Father planned the work of our rescue or the work of our salvation or the work of our redemption. He planned it out. The Son executed it. He, he, he carried out the Father's plan. And the Holy Spirit takes, it, takes what the Son did and the Father planned and He applies it. He brings it into our lives uh, in our histories. And let's look at that briefly. In verse 4, it says that the Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So the Father chose His people before anything existed. And then He uses another similar word in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons. So He chose us in Him in order to be, as it says, blameless, so that we could be holy and blameless before Him. And then He predestined us to be His beloved children. So He planned it all out, the Father did, from before uh, before the foundation of the earth. And that's uh, verses 4 and 5. And then, the Son, verses 7 to 12, He carried out the work of this rescue. He redeemed these people whom God had chosen, whom God had predestined. He redeemed them by shedding His blood. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 it says, In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or our sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, etc. So the Father planned it, the Son executed it, and how did He execute it? He executed it by being executed. He carried it out by, by receiving in Himself the death sentence and dying in our place for our sins so that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. And then it mentions once again that we have a, a, a sonship. It says that He gives us an inheritance in Him. Verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. And that's uh, the Father planned that. He, he, he predestined us to be adopted as His children. And what do children generally get? They get an inheritance. And the Son carried out the inheritance. And it also says in the future that God will sum up everything in Christ. He will, he will unite everything in Christ, verses 9 and 10. God's purpose, it says, making known to, the, to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So He's not just working in His people, He's working in the cosmos, He's working in the world, He's working in the universe, and what Christ did will eventually sum up everything and bring it all back together, because it's all fractured now, and He'll bring it all back together. That's the Son. Father planning, the Son carrying it out, and then the Spirit. Look at verses 13 and 14. The Spirit comes in here. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, when we believe in Christ, what happens? It says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit seals what Christ has done, what the Father has planned. He seals it to our lives and we receive it through faith in Jesus Christ. And He becomes the seal of God on our lives. And He becomes also the guarantee. Do you remember the inheritance? Are we going to get the inheritance? Well, it says here in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we possess it. Now, Father plans... Son carries out, Spirit applies. Why? For what purpose? 
And here I want you to see that there is a refrain, a repeated phrase after each of these sections. After the section of Father, there's a statement. After the section of the Son, a statement. After the section of the Spirit, a statement of purpose. Why did the Father plan? Why did the, why did the Son carry out? Why did the Spirit uh, apply? And if you look at verse 6, you see that it says, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then if you look at verse 12, it says, to the praise of His glory. And then if you look at the end of verse 14, it says, to the praise of His glory. Why did the Father plan? To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did the Son carry out? To the praise of His glory. Why did the Son, or why did the Spirit, why is the Spirit applying? Because it is for the purpose of the praise of His glory. Why does God do all that He does for His own glory? Now, this might sound strange. Because if a human were to say, I exist, and probably many humans do, but often don't say this, but if a human were to say, I exist for my own glory, what would we think? egomaniac, yeah, we would think something's not right. Uh, you, you're, you're making too much of yourself. Existing for your own glory, isn't that a very small purpose? Isn't there something much bigger than you? And now we find God saying, I eternally exist and everything I do from all eternity is for my own glory. Somehow that, that strikes us as wrong. At least it would be wrong, exceedingly self-centered, if it were a creature existing for his or her own glory. But I want you to notice something. When God pursues His own glory, who receives the benefits? We do. We do. We receive the benefits. And so the most loving, the most compassionate, the kindest thing that God can do for us is exist for His own glory. Now, that wouldn't be the case in our case. If I exist for my own glory, I may just be sucking up everything around me and, and, and enjoying it myself and not benefiting anybody around me. But when God exists for His own glory, His blessings spill out in abundance on all His people. So it is loving, and it would be unloving of God not to exist for His own glory. That's why God exists. Okay, but that doesn't get our question answered yet. We're here to figure out why to get up in the morning. And we now need to ask the question, if God exists for His own glory, what about us? I want you to notice something. Let's look at those three phrases once again, because there's a subtle difference between verses 6 and 14 and 12. In verse 6 it says, that is, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then in verse 12... Well, let me see. In verse 14, it says, to the praise of His glory. But then if you look at verse 12, it says, "So that, let's read the whole verse, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. So the first time he says it, it's God existing, working for the praise of His glory. The third time he says it, it says God's working for the praise of His glory. The second time he says it, it says it a little bit differently, doesn't it? It says that He does all this so that we might be for the praise of His glory. 
So it turns out that the answer to the question of why God exists and the question of why we exist, the answer is the same. He exists for His own glory. And we find that our purpose is to exist for His glory as well. Um, Now, let's go back 500 years a little bit. Let's say you are a Christian in the medieval times, Middle Ages, 1500s, and you want to glorify God with your life. What do you do? Well, if you're a woman, you become a nun. If you are a man, you become a priest. And if you really want to up the ante and become really holy, you become a monk. And if you want to up the ante even more and really, really glorify God with your life, you become a hermit monk. And you deny yourself everything. That's how you glorify God. One-fifth, one-fifth of the, the working population in Europe in the Middle Ages worked for the church. A fifth. Why? Because that's what you have to do. You want to glorify God with your life, then you've got to do this. You've got to work for the church. That was the idea. And into this situation came the biblical teaching that we're going to look at about how we can, what must we do to glorify God with our lives. Do we need to become uh, ministers or missionaries? Uh, now, in the U.S. population, it's about 0.3% of people are religious workers of some sort or another, of any sort of, any sort of faith, 0.3%, which I find is a great advantage because I go into places and they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. And some people have never met one. And so they say, oh, well, that's interesting because we're so rare these days. In the Middle Ages, I would not have been rare. One-fifth of the population. And certainly, if we work in the church, we can use our gifts for God's glory. Uh, in your bulletin are some complementary texts in First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. It says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So those are the preachers. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Other types of service. In order that in everything God might may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So... If you have a a calling in the church, and it seems that that's the context here, a calling in the church, use your gifts for what? For God's glory. And so, yes, we can be called to callings in the church and use them for God's glory. But this motto, this motto that we're looking at today that came out of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, or only God's glory, or God's glory alone, means two things. It means, first of all, what we saw in Ephesians. If, if God is the one who plans, carries out, and applies salvation, who gets credit for it? God does. So God gets the glory. If it's, if it's His Word alone, if it's His grace alone, if it's in faith in Christ alone, then if anybody gets salvation out of that, who gets the glory for salvation? God does. Because He did it from beginning to end. But this motto means even more than that. It means this. Not only these, these holy callings of the Middle Ages, not only these, the church work, but it means, in addition, every aspect of our lives has the purpose of glorifying 
God. Everything we do. And this, what happened in the, in the, in the Reformation time, is, is the, the idea of sacred and secular, it was broken down. If we have been redeemed in Christ and had that applied to us by the Spirit through faith, then we no longer have a category of our lives which is secular, kind of off-limits to God's call. On the contrary, every aspect of our lives, everything that we must do in life, every legitimate calling or every legitimate occupation is a holy, sacred calling from God. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.31. It's also printed for you. Look at how simple, mundane, biological this is. Paul says here, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Eating and drinking? Whatever you do. He could have put brush your teeth. Could have put bathe. He could have put clothe yourself. He could have put any of these basic functions that we need to do to survive. He said, even those, even these small basic requirements of life, you need to turn into holy callings from God. And there's another striking verse in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Paul writes this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now I want to ask you, well, I just pulled the verse out so it would be a little unfair for me to ask you. I'll just tell you whom he was addressing when he wrote this. He was addressing slaves. Christian slaves. Now, think about it. What kind of work did these Christian slaves do? Were they bosses? Uh, Were they overseers? Were they managers? Maybe a few might have been, but for the most part, these slaves were doing menial, degrading, difficult, dangerous sort of work. And what did Paul say? Slaves? He wasn't in favor of slavery, but he's saying, this is where God has you right now, and you are believers, and so wherever God has you right now, work heartily as to the Lord, and not as serving men. So slaves, even slaves doing the most menial tasks, can glorify God in their holy, sacred vocation, their calling before God. This is a bit dated. It came out in 1981. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It won four of them. And it beat out Raiders of the Lost Ark, which took some doing, because that was a a bombshell of a movie, uh, kind of the first of a, a genre of movies to which we've become accustomed. But the movie to which I refer was a much slower movie. It was Chariots of Fire. And it pitted two runners, there were others, but namely mostly two runners against each other, one who was very self-consciously running for his own glory and to justify his own existence, and the other who was struggling to run for the glory of God. His name was Eric Little, and he was a son of missionary parents. And his sister Jenny 
wanted Eric to devote his life to being a missionary in China. But Eric was back in the States for studies, and he was running, and he was fast, and he was winning. And there is this climactic scene in the movie, some of you will recall it, where they're out in the, the highlands of Scotland, and, and Eric says to, to Jenny, he says, Jenny, I, I've found my purpose in life, and, and it's for China. I've been accepted as a missionary. Uh, by, by the missionary organization. And she says, oh, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. And then he says, but I've got a lot of running to do first. And she's, she's crushed because she thought her brother was going to follow a holy calling. I mean, missionary to China. That's a holy calling. And he said, Jenny, Jenny, you have to understand. God made me for a purpose, but He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. And he said, to give it up would be to hold God in contempt. And in the movie, little added, you were right. It's not just fun. To win is to honor God. Now, As far as I can tell, that first part of it was original Eric Little. The, when I run, I feel his pleasure. That God has made me fast. As far as I've looked, I've tried to find quotations, and I think that's original. I think maybe the screenplay added, you were right, it's not just fun. To win is to honor him. I found another quotation attributed to Little. Now, I say attributed because, I don't know if you know this, but not everything on the Internet is accurate. But he said, supposedly, in the dust of defeat, as well as in the laurels of victory, there is a glory to be found if one has done his best. Now, I have to admit that I also found that attributed to Michael Jordan. So I'm not sure who first said that. But it reflects a more realistic view of life, doesn't it? Is it only when we win that we honor God? If so, we don't have very many opportunities to honor God in our lives, do we? Because if we total up in our lives the, the defeats and the victories, I think the defeats would outweigh the victories by far. And speaking of Michael Jordan, supposedly, once again, he said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games and 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and I missed. Michael Jordan. Now, it's more difficult to glorify God in the defeats than it is in the victories, isn't it? And I don't think the Christian quarterbacks are wrong when they throw the, the touchdown pass and then they kneel to the ground Or they point heavenward. But I wonder why they don't do it after the interceptions as well. I don't know why they don't do it also after getting sacked for a loss. Or that incomplete pass that would have won the game. Why only are they able to glorify God when they're at the height of success? And not really talking about them talking about us. 
What are the, the tasks that you have to do in life? What are the things that, that wear you down each day that you have to do and you think, I can't do this again? That's your holy calling to glorify God in that. And how many losses do you have each day or each week? Setbacks, disappointments, discouragements, things that just don't come out the way that you wanted them to come out. Those are God's holy calling on your life today. You see, if we can learn to glorify God in the little, mundane, menial, tedious tasks of life, as well as in the big and enjoyable and pleasurable tasks of life, if we can learn to glorify God in the midst of our defeats, as well as in the midst of our victories, if we can learn to glorify God in the onerous and the uh, detestable tasks that we have to do just to get through life, as well as the, the pleasurable and glorious tasks, we will be on the way to discovering and fulfilling why we are here. That we are here in good times and bad, in difficulties and in pleasure, in menial things and in grand. We are here for God's glory alone. Let's pray. Our God, we get caught up in our little glories and we get sidetracked from our purpose. But we thank You that You have called and invited us into a much grander scheme for our lives. And I pray for all of us. We have things that are distasteful every day that we have to do. We have setbacks every day too. We have discouragements. We have defeats as well as victories, as well as triumphs, as well as advances. And I pray, O God, that You would teach us to glorify You, to point that hand towards heaven or to kneel on the ground, at least in our hearts, and say, thanks be to God. Glory be to God. Because this is my holy calling. And I pray for all of us, whatever task You've given us in life, to be in business, to be in music, to be in church work, to be in commerce, to be in one of the professions, to be in teaching, to be laboring, to be whatever it might be. And then those little callings you have for us day by day in our home and in our school and on the sports field, whatever they might be, O God, that we would increasingly learn to do them all for your glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.